following podcast has adult themes and some strong language. Welcome to episode three of season two of my podcast, Excuse the Jess. This week I'm going to talk about literature. Why literature? It's the only thing in my life that has remained a constant. Some of my earliest memories are of Dad reading a bedtime story to me as a child. The one that stands out for me is The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Hall. Dad used to go all in, voices and everything. With this one, he'd say, What did he eat on a Monday? And I'd say, An apple. And what did he eat on a Tuesday? And onwards. It was a picture book. I wasn't a child genius who could read at three. I did learn to read quite young though. I had such an appetite for it. All I wanted to do was read all the books in the house, even my mum Mills and Booms, which definitely wasn't advisable. The early days were Enid Blyton and she was my first hero books. My imagination just lit up with the stories of Joe, Bessie and Fanny with Moonface at the top of the faraway tree where he visited new lands every day. Not surprisingly, the names have now been changed to Joe, Beth and Franny. There was also Peter and Molly, who had adventures on the wishing chair. And, when I was a little older, the famous five, Julian, Dick, George, Anne and Timmy the dog. Thanks to the library, I read all 21 of them. Now, I know how hugely problematic these books were. I convinced myself I was a tomboy because of George, whose birth name was Georgina, who refused to be treated like a girl, but I wasn't. I just didn't want to be the domesticated little nursemaid that Anne was. Although upholding the patriarchy was the least of its problems, with the work rightly being called out for being racist and xenophobic. When I grew out of Enid Blyton, I found another author I loved called Roald Dahl. His books included George's Marvellous Medicine and The Twits, and they kept me entertained for hours. His other books, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, The Witches and Matilda, all immortalised on film for new generations. He was even from Cardiff, which helped with popularity in my eyes. I read and reread the twits because it told the story of an ugly couple. They didn't start ugly, but they thought bad thoughts and they did bad things and it turned them ugly. People who think good thoughts are never ugly. I'm definitely paraphrasing and I won't go back to him, but that idea fascinated me. Yeah, you know what's coming. His legacy is one of anti-Semitism, racism and misogyny. There is little in his books, but apparently this was down to editors. The family issued an apology in 2020 for his truly horrendous anti-Semitic comments, 30 years after his death. My memories of childhood are therefore seriously tarnished by thoughts of my favourite authors. If you think that's unlucky though, wait until I talk about television personalities from my childhood. As I got older, there was a phase in school where everyone would sneak around copies of Harold Robbins' books. I'm not sure if we actually read them or just looked for the salacious parts. I couldn't even tell you if they're that salacious now. I just imagine that 11-year-old shouldn't be reading them. Then that finished and it was James Herbert. It was a rite of passage then that every 13-year-old had a copy of The Rats. We could read about horror and sex. Over the years, I read all his novels, ending with Ash in 2012, the last book he wrote before his death in 2013. James Herbert led me to Stephen King, Clive Barker, Neil Gaiman and so many more. As far as I'm aware, there isn't any controversy with James Herbert. Please may this be the case. You notice that these books are not exactly considered high culture. I did read classics. 
I had read many before I finished primary school. I'm not sure I understood most of them, though, but it was what you did. When I needed to escape the reality of my shitty life as a teenager, though, it was horror that kept me going. Remember, I was a working-class female who got most of the books from the local library. I used to spend hours there. I'm sure Stephen Fry was consuming Greek literature as an early teen. Actually, he's really clever, so that's a bad example. When it came time to do A-levels, picking English literature was a no-brainer. Neither was going to university to study the subject either. Actually, it put me off reading sometimes, being forced to read some tome in a week that had no bearing on my reality or anyone around me. There's been a lot of talk in the news about how humanities are a waste of a degree and the government wants people to study the more technical subjects. Seriously, though, what utter pig's will. I will never regret that English degree. Literature makes us analyse, makes us read between the lines and see what hasn't been said rather than what has been said. Of course, the last thing our government needs are free thinkers. That would do them any good. The other side is I studied business after that. I've made some really poor decisions in my life, but studying English, then studying a vocational subject alongside work was never one of them. It may be the well-rounded person I am today. That and giving up the gym. I am so sorry. The German writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said, The decline of literature indicates the decline of a nation. It's our duty to keep reading. I made the decision on the Sunday evening after the London trip. I was going to alert someone to the fact that individuals were stealing from the organisation. There was no way around it. The card factory had gone. People had lost their jobs at the worst time. My colleagues forced to find other jobs and it could be down to these dickheads. Plus, the factory isn't safe. If it doesn't start to turn a profit soon, it will be next to go. The problem was, who was I going to tell? The operations manager, who I'll call OM from now on, was my immediate supervisor, in charge of the factory. All roads didn't end with him, though. They were the people we were responsible to in the US. I also wasn't 100% convinced that he wasn't some part of the scheme. If he wasn't, how could he not know? I'd only been there a short amount of time and I'd found out. How would I broach it, though? Maybe I should just cut out the middleman and call the police even though I knew that really wasn't an option and that decision would need to be made by somebody who earns a lot more money than me. Monday was a working from home day and it started with my emails. Within about 30 minutes into the day, I received an email from the OM. It started with the usual pleasantries, hoped I was well, had a good weekend. It turned very quickly. Told me he appreciated that I had health problems, that as COVID cases were down, that I should consider being at the base full time. My working from home part-time was negotiated because of the increased distance from my home into work and not to do with my health. Plus, which period were the COVID cases down from? March 2020? Then the next paragraph was the clincher. He understood I was having problems settling into the factory and if it continues to be an issue, he would need to address it. He finished with the pleasantries again, asking if he could help with anything, let him know. I was furious. Had he started the process for constructive dismissal by putting it in an email, so creating a paper trail, or was he just too gutless to face me? Either way, it made my decision easier. I found the email address of his immediate supervisor in the US, the OM's manager, and started to write an email. It sounds like I just banged out an email and press send. It wasn't like that. 
It was a long, carefully worded email with evidence and backup documents attached. I pointed that I was confident I was correct, but couldn't be 100% sure. I also stated why I couldn't go to the OM with my reasons, because although I didn't have any evidence of his involvement, I couldn't be sure he would act on it. I read and reread that email, running it through different spell checks, checking if my grammar was correct, making sure it read correctly. I wanted it to be serious and questioning, rather than accusatory. It took about two hours, and when I was absolutely convinced that I could do no more, I stopped, made myself a coffee, and drunk it, giving it some more thought. If I'm wrong, I could lose my job. If this carries on, I could lose my job anyway. So, with my finger hovering over the send button, I slammed it down, and the email disappeared from my screen. New York is five hours behind Wales, so I wasn't expecting an immediate reply. In fact, it felt like an anticlimax, so I just had to go back to work after the adrenaline of writing that email. Every time I heard that ping that I had an email, though I was worried it would be from the US. As for the OM email, I didn't reply. There's a handy thumbs up at the top of the email, which could be construed as either I like the contents of this email, or you're just acknowledging that you've read it. I ticked it. I know he was expecting a response, but I wasn't so gutless enough not to reply in a face-to-face meeting. We all hate difficult conversations, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't have them. I think I'd finally forgotten about the OAN email and my subsequent one to his manager when I heard the message alert and I didn't think twice about opening it. It was from the US. The PA of the OM's manager with a Zoom link for a meeting at 2pm my time, one hour away. This shit was about to get real. Late English novelist Sue Townsend said, I do think the books, good books for you. They make you feel a citizen of the world, and things like class, sex, and age don't matter. They're the greatest leavener. She was not wrong. I spent my lunchtime doing my hair, makeup, and panicking. My mind went 100 miles per hour. What happens if they just sat me? What if I'm wrong? What if the omen's already gone to him and said I was useless? What if he wants to wipe the floor with me? What if I'm wrong? What if he's a dick? What is everyone right about me and I'm the dick? What if I'm wrong? I couldn't eat, so I went through everything again, and a minute to 2pm I clicked on the link and... Nothing. There was no one there. Just a little note to wait until the host admits me into the room. At 2.02 the screen suddenly changed and was presented with the face of a woman who seemed to look through me. Then she smiled. Didn't quite reach the eyes, but I returned it anyway. She introduced herself as the OM manager's PA and told me he was running a bit late, but just please stay here and he won't be long. She disappeared and I was just staring at my face on screen, which was just out an insult to injury. At 2.10, I thought I was being set up. What was wrong with me? Two things happened at once. My phone started buzzing and the theme from Buffy blasted out. I rushed to reject the call just as my laptop screen burst into life and a man was staring at me. Maybe he hadn't heard. Maybe I got to it in time because he just launched into an apology for being late. I swiftly put my phone to silence and picked up the pen to show I was serious. In retrospect, I don't know how a pen can prove that. I saw the light go on that the Zoom was being recorded and he asked if it was okay. He then said he was sorry he hadn't met before and he meant to come over before now. So what can you say to that? Although I was secretly pleased he knew who I was. The chances of him looking me up in the last ten minutes though was a huge possibility. He didn't seem angry or impatient or friendly for that matter. He was all straight to the point. I was thanked. Yes, thanked, for bringing it to his attention and was asked why I'd gone to the OM. I advised I had no idea how long it had been going on or the extent of it. Then he said, I think you're right. I let that sink in. 
I was right, which meant I missed part of what he said about something about suspicions. He requested if I could get some more documents and send them over to him, and then he'd be in touch. A message flashed on screen to say the recording had turned off and the Zoom feedback screen disappeared. Ten minutes later, I had a copy of the meeting. I looked like a tool. The phone call that came through on the meeting was from Izzy. Her timing was impeccable as always. She left a voicemail asking if she could see me today. Maybe get some food after work? I didn't. I'm aware how it sounds and maybe the people in work are right about me. I was already running on empty after my busy weekend and had to be up early to get to work before others. Pre-pandemic me, or even year ago me, would have gone and put up with the exhaustion. The me now didn't want to hear what a terrible person I was. We could do that any time. I rang her back and this time I got the answer phone. Bright and breezy I thought as the message played out and I said, Can't do tonight, maybe could do later in the week? There was nothing from Ems after the awful way she spoke to me on Saturday. I didn't hear from Izzy or Ems the rest of the day. I had that quandary where I thought they should have been in touch and relief they hadn't because I didn't need the drama. That night I went to bed early and it only took me an hour to drop off and I woke up five times. It was an excellent night's sleep for me. And I needed it for the week ahead. Stephen King said, Only enemies speak the truth. Friends and lovers lie endlessly, caught in a web of duty. And that's why he's one of the greatest horror writers of all time. Tuesday I was up at 5am and I didn't even get to write. No, up, wash, dress and into work. It's summer-ish, so at least it was light for the journey and it passed quickly because I was listening to an audiobook. I was relieved to find I was first in and I managed to get all bar one document for the OM's manager. There was one locked in the office of the OM and there was no getting it unless I asked, which meant I had to have a reason to have it. He was second in the building and asked me why I was there so early. I said, well, you did want me in the office more. I smiled as I said it, but it was beneath me. Deliberately said to put him at an ease, because I didn't realise how pissed off I was at him until now. He chuckled and said something like, very good. I asked if we could have a conversation that morning, and he nodded, just to give him some time to settle in and start the day. By 10am, I was in the office with the door closed. I could see he was very uncomfortable, but I couldn't work out why. I'd always had good working relationship with previous managers. Even at the Cardiff base, so he must know that. Never done anything here to give the impression I was difficult, but here we were. Him the boss and me the difficult employee, who was about to ask for a document I really didn't need. That was the first time I officially lied to him, said I needed it for planning. It was the numbers guy job to forecast, but our jobs crossed over because I was big picture person. Again, I technically didn't need it, but the OM agreed to send it anyway. It made me think that he really didn't have a clue what was going on. If he had, he certainly wouldn't have agreed to send it to me. Then we had the conversation. I told him that I was uncomfortable with the way that rumours and downright lies were allowed to be openly discussed in the factory and that the gossip culture wasn't conducive to a happy work environment. I continued that I felt the employees had taken a knot with the closure of Cardiff Base and this factory was not safe and I would like to look at ways to build their confidence instead of them working in fear. Again, he was taken aback and I felt mean to be pissed off with him. 
He said he agreed and was looking forward to seeing what I would come up with. Then I said I would speak to HR about my working arrangements because that was based in New York now and he hated the thought of me going direct to them with anything. He told me he'd been hasty and we'd just see how it goes. I felt guilty. He had no idea what was coming. I was still pissed off with him but guilt was in the mix. I had the email again around 2pm with a Zoom link for the following day. That would be a problem. Numbers guy would be sat in the same office as me. I had to accept it, but it was also meant I was going to lie to the OM again. I tapped his door and explained that someone I met on Saturday had gone down with COVID and I was feeling a bit rough and could I work from home this week and spend more time in the office in the following weeks. Technically wasn't a lie. It was entirely possible that someone in that cinema or party on Saturday had come down with a virus and I did feel rough. Due to tiredness and the ever-increasing dread of what was coming. I hoped I wouldn't be hit with the dreaded virus now. He was extremely decent about it and all the feelings being pissed off with him disappeared. The Zoom meeting was at 1pm and when I looked I realised it had been booked in for two hours. Two flipping hours. Couldn't even add it to my calendar as it was a secret. I decided I wouldn't make a good secret agent, which is great news because I'm too fucking old. I had a lot to get through that morning though if no one was going to notice I would be missing that length of time. This time I checked my phone was on silent, which reminded me I hadn't heard from Izzy and M's this week. Maybe I was supposed to contact Izzy after her invite, which would be fair. M's no. The more she left it, the more indignant I felt about it. If she was willing to throw away 20, no, closer to 30 years friendship for this, then that was up to her. I wasn't in the wrong though. Which is why when I heard my name, I jumped, because obviously I was in the world of my own, and the Owens manager was on time today. It wasn't two hours. It's closer to three. At one stage, I heard his PM telling me he had a 9.30 and he asked her to postpone. He'd done his homework though, and it was impressive what he managed to put together in a short time, when he hadn't even been here and was managing a large portfolio of businesses. That's what his company profile said. Under his job, International Business Director. I'd also done my homework. I began to appreciate his no-nonsense style though. We got through a lot fairly quickly and I never once felt patronised. Again, I can't get into the nitty gritty of this. Not even sure I can put this out in the world yet. This may be a five minute episode. He asked how I was doing. I guess he meant professionally, not wanting a full rundown on my life. I was going to say fine, but weirdly found myself telling the truth. It wasn't natural for me to go against my colleagues in this way, but people had already lost their jobs and people would continue to if it carried on. He nodded, asked if they were friends of mine. I replied, no, they can't stand me. And he laughed. It was so infectious and it didn't feel like it came from the man who'd been serious for three hours. It made me smile, even though it hadn't been a joke. On Thursday afternoon, I had an email he was flying in. I should meet him in the factory reception on Monday morning. This shit was about to get very real. The upside with all his stress with work had taken the mind off the phone call from Ems. By Thursday afternoon, though, I was no longer upset with her. I was furious. She still hadn't been in touch. Maybe she does think I'm the bitch from hell and won't get in touch again. I'd played it safe all my life until three weeks on a setting made me reconsider. I'll never say COVID was a good thing, but it was a wake-up call. And I'm not even buying Millie's explanation that it was because she loved me. It was obvious she didn't even like me. I needed to speak to Izzy, though. That I could have been at fault with. I rang her and we arranged to meet for tea. I'd half expected Ems to be there too. She wasn't. 
Izzy looked exhausted. She half asked asking me about the weekend. I told her some of it and she told me I was getting fancy in my old age. Then she told me that I should have told one of them I was going. When I replied that I hadn't heard from either of them last week and I could have been dead at the bottom of the stairs for all they knew, she shut up. I thought she would leave it there and she started talking about her new niece that she was besotted with. As we finished eating, we both made moves to go. It wasn't going to be a long night. Neither of us was bursting with energy. You should speak to Ems, Izzy suddenly said. I stood up. Why? What's wrong? Is she ill? Izzy remained sat like she wanted to speak. No, nothing like that, but you should speak. I nodded. Yep, she owes me an apology. Izzy still hadn't moved. You don't know all the facts. I agreed. Neither does she. Then I did the pleasantries, how lovely it was to see her, and I laughed. We would have been going in opposite directions anyway. Wish I hadn't gone out, though. Because now I was royally pissed off with Izzy. American novelist Caroline Livett said... Literature and allow us to experience the best of humankind, where instead of giving up, we struggle desperately in the rooms for love, connection and hope. And that's why many of us are happy to lose ourselves in fiction. My weekend started at 6am Saturday morning. No trip to London, no actual place to go. And I was exhausted, so it was definitely the best time for lying. Instead, that was when I decided to give myself an anxiety dream. It was Monday morning and the alarm hadn't gone off, so I woke up at 8am, time I should have been on the road by. In my dream though, I rushed for the shower and by the time I came out it was 10am. The good news was that as if by magic I was dressed and pulling up outside the factory. I ran into reception and Sarah laughed at me, said I picked the wrong date to be late. She'd never been so cruel. Again, magic happened and I found myself walking into the conference room. There was a number of guys, the factory supervisor, the OM, a few of the colleagues who worked on the floor, including Catherine, and him, the international director. He was at the top of the table, actioning me to sit at the only empty seat. I could see them all smirking at me and I knew I was in trouble. I sat down as the international director stood up and moved to stand over me. He told me I'd dragged him all the way over here on some stupid whim. There was no conspiracy. People just know you're a fucking nightmare. He swore in the dream. That's not just me. The whole table exploded in laughter. Huge whoops and high fives all round. Thick as shit, number guy shouted. In came Sarah, pushing a tray full of champagne. I felt sick to the stomach and went to stand. The international director pushed my shoulders down so I had to sit back down. Then he pulled my hair, snapping my head back so his face loomed over mine. I was terrified. His face wasn't the one I've been seeing last week now. It was sneering and mean and a little bit like Robert Downey Jr.'s. So he was not only powerful, but I thought he was a bit hot. He told me he'd never come across someone in all his career that was inept as me and he felt sorry for me because I obviously had nothing else going on. Catherine shouted, Because she's old and ugly! And there were more laughter. The Downey Jr. lookalike nodded in agreement and then leaned in, so our faces were in within into each other, and he whispered, You're fired. My wheelchair was lifted up with me on it, and I was put on the table while music started blasting from nowhere. Everyone stood up, and some started pushing me back and forth across the table. Others were filming my demise on their phones. I was living my own personal Black Mirror episode. My chest was tight and I had to fight the tears because there was no way they were seeing how upset I was. 
The international director was stood at the far end of the table and called for me to be wheeled down. He was going to roll me down the table at speed so I'd either crash on the floor or smash into a concrete wall. Humiliation wasn't enough. They wanted to kill me. Everyone started to shout, Do it! Do it! Do it! Even I wanted him to do it to end it. He let go and I was hurtling down the table until I realised I had some control in the situation and I stood up. The audience was not impressed with that. They started throwing things at me, ice, cushion, bottles, and a couple of them had sweeping brushes for some reason and was poking me. A particularly vicious colleague poked me right at the stomach and I felt searing pain. I tried hard to stop the shaking but it was obviously visible and everyone was so happy with that. The throwing things and the poking started again and I ducked and moved and spun to try and involve it all. And it suddenly stopped. And they all looked towards the door. So I followed their gaze. In came Izzy and Ems. They looked around the crowd and then at me standing on the table. I was so relieved. They'd come for me. Ems held her hand out to help me down. As I reached out, she snapped it away and shouted, Where's the champagne? Then more champagne pop, music playing, people laughed, people threw stuff at me, including insults, and my friends Izzy and Em joined in the fun. I couldn't breathe. I started to reach out, but people just stood back and carried on filming. I desperately was trying to breathe, trying to find a space so I could get out, but I couldn't. I was trapped. I collapsed on the table, shaking and desperately trying to catch my breath. I was suffocating, and as I blanked out, I heard the cheers that I was finally gone. I woke up, sat up and sucked in air. I'd obviously stopped breathing. I clutched my stomach because I could still feel a stabbing pain there and I was shaking. I looked around my bedroom and I should have felt relieved but all I felt was that dream was telling me something. I slowly moved downstairs to make coffee. The kitchen clock showed 6am and I thought at least I could take the dog for an early walk. Then I remembered I didn't have a dog because I didn't need one more living, breathing thing to reject me. As the tears started to fall, I realised I couldn't keep going like this. The chances are this work situation was going to go horribly wrong. And that was okay. It was the rest of my life which was the problem. That's enough from me. Thank you so much for listening. It just leaves me to say, please come back. Not needy or anything, but do what you want. Also, a lot of this stuff is from the internet. And did you know the internet can lie? You can find me on Instagram at Excuse the Jess and let's do this again soon. Excuse the Jess was written and performed by Jackie J. Sarah. It is a deliciously bright production. If you enjoyed this, please click follow and give us a five-star review or donate via Buy Me A Coffee. All details, including full credits, can be found on the website excusethejess.com. Excuse the Jess.